So we will begin in Mark chapter 12, but let me pray first. I really feel the need to pray this morning, so here we go. God, um, I pray right now that you would just come and illuminate this difficult passage, this difficult character, this difficult theological idea that really does point us to Jesus and ultimately leads us into communion with you. Uh, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds, give us the ability to think clearly, and that our hearts would be deeply stirred by this message of grace and hope. And I pray right now that you would just come and work in us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Y'all ready? Thank you, Lane. All right. (laughs) So let's get going here. Um, In the the time of Jesus, people knew there was a guy named the Messiah or the Christ who was coming. The Hebrew word Mashiach or something like that is the word for anointed. The Greek word is Christos, the word Christ. So Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. And they're waiting for the anointed Christ, the King, the, the Messiah to come. And there was major debate. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, all these Jewish groups were debating who is the Messiah? Who is this Christ figure? Who is he going to be? What's he going to do when he gets here? Much of the debate Jesus deals with is it, who is Jesus? Who, who is the Christ? What's he going to do? And here was a big misconception. You know, back in these societies in particular, who was greater, the father or the son? Who would, who would be considered greater in, a, in, this, in this ancient culture, the father or the son? The father, okay? The father was always greater than the son, And this works its way out through biblical history. So we know that the Messiah, the Christ who is to come, is going to be the son of David. No one debated that. 2 Samuel 7, 14, 15, and 16, God said, David, I am going to put your offspring on the throne, and he will reign forever. And so we know it's a son of David who's going to be the Messiah, which would mean by logic, who's greater, David or his son, the Messiah? By that logic, who would be greater? David. So the Pharisees thought, well, the Messiah, this Christ figure, is just going to be a regular earthly king who's going to be like David, but perhaps a little less great in some ways than David. He's just going to be a regular Messiah king who's going to rule in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no, not so fast. Look at what he says in Mark 12. Skip down to verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, and then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls the Christ, him, Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Confused yet? It's a little tricky. So get this. Jesus is reading David's psalm, Psalm 110. Jesus says it was written by David. Psalm 110 says it was written by David. It's a psalm of David. So David was writing around 1,000 B.C., and he's writing this psalm. And he says, the first verse, Jesus quotes, The Lord said to my what? Lord. How many lords do we have in this verse? 
We have two lords. This is the Old Testament, okay? So get your thinking cap on. David says, Yahweh, the Lord, said to my Lord. So the my there would be David. David has two lords. He has Yahweh, the Lord God, and he's got this other person named the Lord. And David says, the Lord said to my Lord. So in a Jewish mindset, this is very strange. Who is David talking about? And most people had come to the conclusion that the second Lord mentioned is the Messiah. And they were right about that. It was. It, this is the Messiah, the son of David, who's going to come. And Jesus asked a very important question. Everybody knows that the son is less great than who? The father. And David calls his son the Messiah, not his son, but his Lord. Now that's a little confusing. Because if he's just merely a human descendant of David, he would be less great than David because David is his greater father, like our great forefathers, right? But David calls his messianic son his Lord. And Jesus goes, if David called the Messiah his Lord, how can he be merely just a physical descendant of David? David would not have called him his Lord if he was merely his son, which means the Messiah must be both a physical descendant of David and the Lord. Jesus got the incarnation of himself in the Old Testament without even having to add any words to the Scripture. Jesus, Jesus points back and goes, David knew the Messiah would be his Lord, which means David knew that the Lord was speaking to his Lord, the Messiah, which means the Messiah is greater than his father David. And the Pharisees don't even know how to respond. They don't even get this. So now flip to Psalm 110. By the way, and I don't mean this in any kind of judgmental sense, if you have a friend who is Orthodox Jew, I would recommend taking them to this psalm. Because they do not believe in the Trinity. They just believe in Yahweh, the God. There's one person in the Godhead. We just sung about God, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, which an Orthodox Jew rejects. The Orthodox Jew does not believe Jesus is equally eternal with the Father, that there's just one person, God the Father. Well, it's kind of hard to argue with Psalm 110 because David says he has the Lord speaking to his Lord, God the Father speaking to God the Son. Very strong evidence for the divinity of Jesus is right there in the Old Testament. So Psalm 110, we'll read a few verses. Verse 1, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now listen to verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, this is a reference to the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of our friend Melchizedek. Okay? Now, I want you to think for a second. David is writing this around 1000 BC. David is the second king of Israel. Second king. Remember who the first one was? Saul. Okay, now remember, 
Saul's kingship was going fairly well for a while, and then some pride crept in, some sin crept in, and the moment of the turning point for Saul, where God actually said, I'm no longer going to let Saul and his son Jonathan remain king. I'm switching the dynasty from Saul's family to the the family uh, of the tribe of Judah and Jesse, where David's from. God shifts away from Saul. He rejects Saul because of a specific sin Saul committed. Saul, as king of Jerusalem, king of Israel, excuse me, decided to not only be a king, but to also fulfill the role of a priest. He offered sacrifices in a way that only the priest was allowed to do. In other words, he was trying to be both a king and a, say it with me, priest, okay? And because of that act, he was violating the the law of Moses, and God said, that was tremendous sin. I'm rejecting you as king. So David knows The king is not supposed to be the priest, and the priest is not supposed to be the king, right? David knows. It was written in his memory. He knows. The guy before me got kicked out of office because he mixed together kingship and priesthood in one person, and that was a big no-no, okay? Now, first seven years David reigned, he was in the southern kingdom. After seven years, he was reigning in a place called Hebron. And David brought together the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom. He united them as one for the first time under his dynasty. It was a huge moment. If you remember the story of the ark being brought in and that man touching the ark, Uzzah, and he is struck down, if you remember that story, that's 2 Samuel 7. This is when David has moved his, his headquarters to Jerusalem. For the first time, Jerusalem is the, is the city of God. It's the, it's the center of all the attention. David made Jerusalem the, the capital city of the whole nation, right there, seven years into his reign. To celebrate, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and sets up the tabernacle in town. For the first time in history, the king and the priest are now living in the exact same spot right here in Jerusalem for the first time. And David is writing a lot of songs that we call psalms. And one day, David picks up his pen, gets out a piece of parchment, and begins to write Psalm 110. And he has a picture, now get this, of one day there's going to be a Messiah, a a kingly son of David, a male descendant who will reign on the throne, who is going to be a male descendant, a physical human descendant of David. Number two, he's going to be called the Lord. So he's human and more than a human. And number three, he's not just a king like David. He is going to be, according to verse four, a what? A priest forever after the order of, we don't, Melchizedek. How could David, who knows the guy before him got kicked out of the king, uh, being king for mixing together king and priest, how could David think that one day there would be a king-priest again reigning over God's people? How could that possibly be true? In fact, if you want some more trivia here, a little, it's not trivial, but it's kind of trivia. Uh, hundreds of years later, a guy named Uzziah became king. He reigned for 50-plus years. Can you imagine that? I mean, you have a president of maybe eight years at the most, but imagine 50 years. I mean, people would have been born, lived up, gotten married, had kids, and lived large portions of their lives with one man as king, Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king, and his great sin was the same as Saul. One day, Uzziah, it says, when he was strong, I hate this verse because it scares me to death. Think about this. I love the verse, but I hate what it says about me. should correct my grammar there. Love the verse. It says, one day when Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. When he was strong, he, grew, he was successful. 
40 plus years reigning as a great king, increasing the army, increasing the wealth, he grew proud to his destruction. You know what he did? He wanders into the tabernacle, excuse me, into the temple. He wanders into the temple one day, and he's about to offer a sacrifice that only the priest was supposed to offer. And it says a number of priests, could have been up to 40 or 50 priests from the tribe of Levi, rushed in, and they said, Uzziah, stop. What you are about to do is an abomination to God. Stop, stop, stop. Do not do that. That is not your role. And it says, Uzziah looked at them with pride and continued with the offering of the sacrifice. He refused to stop. And it says, at that moment, leprosy broke out on his forehead. Right there. God, God gave him leprosy on the spot. He panicked. He ran out of the temple. And he lived the last few years of his life in shame, ignominy, and contempt in the leper colony of Jerusalem before he died in shame. So, Kings and priests are not supposed to mix together, right? And David says the Messiah is going to be a king and a priest, and we have to ask ourselves, how can that be true if that violates Old Testament law? Do you understand the issue? How can you be both if the Old Testament says you can't be both? All right? So here's what I mean when I say, where does the Old Testament say you can't be a king and a priest? Here's what it says. The priesthood, remember there's 12 tribes of Israel? Remember the 12 sons of Jacob? They all made up the tribes. The descendants of Levi and Aaron are the priests. That's why we call it Leviticus, the book of Leviticus. That's about the priesthood. That's the descendants of Levi. The Messiah is going to come through David's line, which is from the tribe not of Levi, but of, anybody want to risk it? Judah. Whoa, that was unexpected. Very good. Yeah, so out of the tribe of Judah, that's where the king's coming from, and out of Levi, that's where the priest comes from. No questions about it. It has to be that way. Judah leads to David, leads to the Messiah. Levi leads to the priesthood, and David says one day you're going to have a king priest. That violates the Mosaic law. That's the problem, okay? That's the issue we're dealing with here. You say, this issue has nothing to do with anything in my life. Why would I sit here and endure a talk on this subject. I promise you, I promise you this has significance to your Sunday afternoon, but you got to hang with me because we're not even done with the hard part yet. You're like, please no. Keep going, all right? Flip with me now back to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Catch you up to speed, God uh, picks Abram, and he says, through Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, a great people, kings will come from you, and he goes, I'm going to give you this promised land. Abram's with his nephew named Lot. I heard someone say one time that they called him Lot because he was a lot of trouble. Okay, Lot was a problem. And uh, Abraham and Lot separate. They have so many sheep and cattle at this point that they can't actually feed. Their, their, their sheep and cattle cannot feed upon the same area, so they have to split because their workers are starting to fight during the day because they're like, hey, I want that grass for my sheep. They're like, no, I want that grass for my sheep. And there was some bickering going on. So finally, Abram goes, Lot, you pick the part of the land you desire, and you can have it. So Lot looks over and sees the nicest land and goes, how about that one over there? And Abram's like, I knew you were going to do that. See a lot. So Lot takes off, and Lot ends up being a little bit foolish, and by a little bit I mean a lot foolish. He goes over and starts dwelling outside the doors of Sodom. Now, even if you know very little about anything in the Bible, you know Sodom and Gomorrah are not good names, okay? I don't even have to expand on that. Just bad. Bad feeling about that. He's living near Sodom. He ends up moving so close, he ends up eventually moving into Sodom, and he becomes one of the leaders in the city, and it was not good. 
Now, here's what happens. At this point in time, they had these people, they, they called them kings, but this is so long ago, this is 2000 BC, 4,000 years ago. When they say kings, they don't mean like a ruling king like Charles II or some big name. They, they mean, think of it more like a town mayor or something, like a much smaller thing than what we think of as king. But there were lots of kings in this sense. Most towns, from what we can tell, were about 5,000 to 10,000 people. Think pretty small. And they had armies. And when you think army, please don't think the Marine Corps. Okay, we're not talking like, when we say trained armies, we do not, we mean like a guy who like kind of knows how to like fight a little bit and like, okay, he's part of the army. Okay, that's what we're dealing with. It's kind of like, think raiding parties. And there were these kings who would fight and have these skirmishes amongst themselves and they would go up and attack each other and try to steal each other's stuff and run away. And that's what we're about to see happen here. There was a guy named Keterleomer who was one of these kings. He had three kings underneath him. So there's four kings, and they would travel south, getting closer and closer to where Abram lived and even where Lot lived, and they would just raid a town. They would kill the men. They would steal women and children. They would take the wealth, the plunder. They would take sheep and cattle, and then they would race away, uh, and that's what they did. So uh, look at verse 8. I'm skipping a little bit here, but this is Genesis 14, verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the ba valley of Siddim. With Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. So here it summarizes four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some of them fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. When I said this is not exactly the Marine Corps, I mean some of them were falling into tar pits. It's not great fighting skills, okay? You're in the middle of a battle and you, you, you don't notice that there's a bitumen tar pit and they just fell in and some of these people would get killed in horrible ways. So not the most incredibly advanced skill here from these armies, but they're fighting and here's what happens. Verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Now here's the key part for us. They also took Lot, a lot of trouble, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came to and told Abram the Hebrew, it's the first time the word Hebrew appears in the Bible right there, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born of, in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Okay, picture this. The raiding party comes into town. They kill some of the men who are fighting. They grab some of the women and children, grab, grab some of the stuff, and they take off. In this case, they'd gotten Lot as well, and they took off out of there. When an army would overpower this army, the people as they ran and fled from battle would just start throwing things. So if they took some of your gold and silver, they would just throw it on the ground as they ran away to try to make their escape a little speedier. So Abram chases them. Dan is about 120 miles north. 120 miles with his 318 men. They're pursuing this army and they're picking things up as they leave them. And then it says this. Look at verse 15. When they, get, when they finally get to the army, verse 15. Abram divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. 
After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Now skip 18 to 20, we'll come back. Look at 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So you can have the, give me my people back, but you can keep the plunder. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Okay. If you skip verses 18 to 21, you don't seem to lose anything of the story. Abram defeats the kings, comes back. The king of Sodom comes out, greets him, says, hey, I want my people back. You can keep the plunder. We're good. And Abram says, I'm not keeping any of your stuff because I don't want anyone to say that the king of Sodom made Abraham rich. Only God is going is to increase my name. I'm not letting you do it. And they go their separate ways. End of story. Inserted into the middle of this story is this very difficult and puzzling passage. Look at it with me, verses 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, do you see anything in this verse that's interesting? Look at it. He is king of what? You know, Salem is short for a town called Jerusalem. So this is the king of Jerusalem, long before King David was ever even born, a thousand years before David existed. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Salem, shows up, named Melchizedek. He brought out bread and wine. He was not just king, he was also priest of God Most High. Now, here's something even more interesting. The word Salem is the same root word in Hebrew as the word shalom, which means peace. So, and by the way, his name, Melchizedek, is made up of two Hebrew words that literally means king of righteousness. So, okay. So Abram's chilling after the battle. He's all exhausted, sitting there. They're eating some food. The bread and wine comes out. Melchizedek. No setup. Just appears. Poof. Melchizedek's here. Who's Melchizedek? No idea. Shows up. Hey, I'm, I'm, my name means king of righteousness. I'm the king of peace. I am the king and the priest of Jerusalem. Hi, Abraham. Abram's like, hi. Who are you? Okay. And this guy's carrying bread and wine. Okay. Hey, guys, here's some bread and wine. Eat up. You're like, what? Verse 19 gets even more crazy. And he uh, blessed him. So Melchizedek blessed who? Abraham. And said, blessed be Abraham by God most high. Now, hang on. Old Testament The blessing always comes from the greater person. The fathers bless the sons. You know how this works? The greater always blesses the inferior. The greatest man in the Old Testament has got to be Abraham. He's the father of God's people. He's the patriarch of all patriarchs. He's the top of the totem pole, okay? He's as great as it gets, Abraham. And you've got a guy blessing Abraham, which means this man, Melchizedek, who we know almost nothing about, is greater than the greatest man in the Old Testament, Abraham. Now, you with me? This is strange. Okay, so the greater than Abraham, he blesses Abraham. If Abraham was greater than Melchizedek, he would have blessed Melchizedek. But Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, he blesses Abraham. So who is this mystery figure who's greater than Father Abraham? Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, 
possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. He credits God, not Abraham, with the victory. He doesn't say, you were so smart in your abilities to get Lot back. He credits God. And it gets even stranger, end of verse 20, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram just tithed to Melchizedek. Now again, that represents his inferiority to Melchizedek. Okay. Then, I don't know if you've noticed in Genesis, there's some genealogies. It's like you're reading the Hebrew phone book. You with me on this? So-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, gave birth to so-and-so, lived so many years, and then he died. Remember chapter 5? The whole chapter was about that. Tells you how long they lived, who they were, where they went, how many kids they had, then they died. Chapter uh, 9, 10, 11, covered in genealogies. So everybody who is anybody who matters in Genesis has a genealogy telling us their whole lineage, right? We're used to this. We know everything about everything. Melchizedek got no genealogy. Now, this makes it even more of a mystery, okay? Now, you know what an argument from silence is? The, the arguments from silence can be kind of weak, you know? What does it prove? Well, there's an old Sherlock Holmes story called The Dog That Goes Bark in the Night. You may have read this one. And Mel Sherlock Holmes solves a mystery this way. It was an argument from silence. He said, this dog outside this house always barks when a stranger walks up. Always. And the night the murder happened, the dog did not bark which means the dog had to have known the murderer. You with me? So sometimes silence is very significant and actually gives us meaning. This is an example of an argument from silence giving us some meaning. You, okay? Maybe we should stand up and stretch, okay? You, you, you hanging in here? Now, again, Hebrews said, it is hard to explain. Preach it, brother. I'm saying that to the guy who wrote Hebrews. <laughs> so, so, there, the, everybody who matters in Genesis has a lengthy genealogy attaching them all the way back to Adam. Now, there are some people in Genesis who don't have a genealogy, but at least they have the decency not to matter. <laughs> Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a character who matters greatly because he's greater than Abraham, and we don't know a, a shred of anything about him. So, this has got to mean something. What does this mean? Okay. The tension has been, I know, you, you can't take it anymore. Flip with me to the New Testament book of Hebrews, where Jerry was minutes ago, Hebrews chapter 7. And we are about to get a pretty crazy answer to that question. Hebrews chapter 7. The author of Hebrews is going to give us a summary and an explanation of what we just read in Genesis. Here we go. And I mean, I mean I'm serious. Just strap on the thinking, because this is stretching the, the, the mind, but I think it is profound. Hebrews 7.1, here we go. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now, that's just a total, a perfect summary of what we just read. Now he starts to interpret it and give us the meaning. Right here, middle of verse 2. He, Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of shalom, peace. 
That's exactly what, he's exactly right. That's exactly what it means. Verse 3, Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy. We just discussed this. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, okay, I, a couple things. I don't think he means that Melchizedek literally never was born and never died. I think he's saying, using a metaphor of how Genesis was written, he has no genealogy. So metaphorically speaking, he has no mother and father, no beginning of days, no marked off end of life. It doesn't say he lived so many years and then he died. It just says he appeared and he disappeared. No reference to mother, father, genealogy, life, birth, death, age. So metaphorically speaking, it's as though he has no mother and father and continues a priest forever. Verse four. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch tithed, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, remember what came from the Levites? The priests. And those descendants of Levi, that's the priests, who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law, the law of Moses, to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man... Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It's beyond dispute. The greater blesses the lesser. Verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes from the people, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Okay, hang on one second. Here's what he's saying. David, when he wrote his, when he's writing that Psalm 110, David somehow picked up on this. He thought, okay, he's reading, reading Genesis 14, he sees Melchizedek, he goes, okay. I know Saul got in big trouble for being a king and a priest. But Melchizedek wasn't under the law of Moses. He was born before that law was given. Okay, there's nothing inherently wrong with being a king and a priest. It was just wrong under the law of Moses at this time, under the ceremonial law. So he goes, okay, what if, David thinks, what if one day there could be a king who is also a priest again, like Melchizedek? Continue with me here, verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from which tribe? Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So here's our problem right here. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, like the Levites, but by the power of an indestructible life, the resurrection, 
For it is witnessed of him in Psalm 110, you, that's Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, you with me here? The way you become a priest under Levi is you have to be born a Levite. You, you get your priesthood through bodily descent, through a genealogy. Jesus is not from that tribe, so how can he have the right to be a priest? And the answer is, there's a different qualification to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's not a Levitical priest. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the way he qualifies is not by bodily descent. We don't know anything about his bodily descent from Melchizedek. The right Jesus has to be a king and a priest is that he is going to live forever, and therefore he can be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, the requirement to be a Levite is to be born in the family. The requirement to be a priest like Melchizedek is to have an indestructible eternal life, which Jesus has and only has through the resurrection. Continue with me here, verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Okay. I think when David wrote Psalm 110, I think, he th I think David saw that the Levitical priesthood was not going to work. I think, remember David himself said, remember after he sinned with Bathsheba, he wrote Psalm 51, and he said, if you wanted the blood of bulls and goats, I would give it to you, but you really want a, a, the, the sacrifice of a contrite and broken spirit and a heart of humility. You don't want, the, he knew that animals dying themselves would never actually save people from their sins. It wouldn't be great enough. So David knew the Levitical priesthood is a flawed system. Animals cannot save people from sin. They are a picture, a sign pointing forward to a greater high priest, but he knew the greatest Levitical high priest wouldn't work to save us. Here's why. The greatest high priests were sinners. Number one problem, all Levitical priests were sinners. Number two, all of them offered imperfect sacrifices, animals. How can an animal atone for murder and adultery and thief, uh, stealing and lying? It, it can't. Number three, all Levitical priests, even the best of them, will one day die. So David somehow knew by the Holy Spirit's prompting that the Levitical priesthood was a flawed system and would never actually save us from their sin. So he mentions that one day there'd be a priest who was greater from a different order, the order of Melchizedek. And here's what the author of Hebrews says to explain that, verse 20. It was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests, those are Levites, were made such without an oath. You did not have to take an oath to become a Levitical priest. God did not give an oath for Levitical priests. Verse 21. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Pause again. The word covenant is the same word that we translate as testament. The Old Testament means the Old Covenant. The New Testament means the New Covenant. The, the New Testament means the New Covenant. David knew a thousand years BC that one day Levitical priests would have an expiration date. That system would be flawed and failed. It would not work. And he knew one day there would be a priest from a greater order, the order of Melchizedek, who transcends the order of Levi, Aaron, Judah, and Abraham, who would actually be a king and a priest over God's people forever. 
David saw that, and he writes it down, and then the text just hangs there in the air for 1,000 years before Jesus is born. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number. There were tons of Levitical priests. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. One more spot, chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Aren't you glad he finally got to a point? The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Okay, if I can just get your attention here for a few more minutes, uh, I want to try to tie this together and then lead into communion. Every Levitical priest would live, sin, offer imperfect sacrifice, and die. And there were many, many hundreds of priests. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, I'm the first priest who never sinned. I'm the first priest who never sinned. Number two, I'm going to offer this, the greatest sacrifice of all time, the first sacrifice that will actually cure the sin problem. This is the first priest ever to bleed his own blood and to give his own blood on the altar of God. First priest who ever bled himself on the altar. Jesus gave his blood. He offered his blood, represented by the juice here on this table, for us. And his sacrifice was sufficient, so he sat down at the right hand of God. The priest stands continually, day in, day out, because guess what? A Levitical priest's job is never over. Every time someone sins, you offer another bull, another lamb, another dove, over and over and over. How many millions of bulls and goats were killed? How many Passover lambs were slaughtered? in order to forgive the people of their sins, and it never worked. It never purified their consciences. Jesus shows up and says, hey, I'm the true and better high priest. I'm going to give my own blood for the sake of my people once for all. When I'm done giving my blood, I'm going to sit down at the right hand of God because I'm done with sacrifice. I am done. The altar is closed forever. There are no more high priests that we need. We don't need anyone else to be a high priest. Jesus died once. So all sufficient for all sins, and now he has risen from the dead, triumphant over sin and Satan and death, and he is reigning and ruling at the right hand of God, and he right now is powerful to pray for and intercede for you and I forever because he will never die again. He conquered death. No Levitical priest could do that. He conquered sin. No Levitical priest could do that. He conquered the grave, which no one else could do, and he now, under the legal rights of the Melchizedekian priesthood, can be the eternal king and the eternal priest. If he was just a king, if Jesus was just your king, you would be in serious trouble. 
because he would just be a judge who would come down, and yeah, he could save the world maybe, but he'd destroy all the sinners, which would be all of us. So if he was just a king, we would all be dead in hell right now if he was just a king. If he was just a priest, he could maybe atone for sin, but he would have no power to make the world right again. Jesus is not one or the other. You don't have to pick one. Jesus is the eternal and great high priest who offered himself for sin, sat down, finished the job. It's done. Your sin is gone, paid for in full. It is absolutely taken away. It is finished. And Jesus is now saying, because I've rescued my people from their sin, you don't have to worry about the sin problem. So when I come back as ruling and reigning king with a sword coming out of my mouth and fire in my eyes, and I come down to rule on earth, it says he will tread the winepress of the fury of God's wrath, and he will, it says he will shatter nations on the day of his fury. We don't have to fear because our sin has been covered by the high priest. So Jesus will make the world right. He will bring justice. He will bring judgment. He will fix it. He will make all things new there will be a new heavens and a new earth and we will reign forever with Jesus the great high priest and king after the order of Melchizedek he is the true king of righteousness who never sinned he's the true king of peace the prince of peace who will bring eternal peace to this world forever and he himself is the true and great sacrifice he himself is the sinless wrath bearer of our sins and also he is the ruling and reigning king of of his people and we need to tell people this good news we need to tell people this good news you have a job again you are an army not an audience if what we do in this church is just here on sunday we have failed and we're not even worth calling ourselves a church if we're just here on Sunday to hear a sermon and sing some songs and we go out and just live our life, this is not even functioning as a church. Ephesians 4 says God has given pastors, teachers, and evangelists to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which means I'm not doing ministry. You are. Ha-ha. <laughs> My job right here is to equip. Your job is to do the work of the ministry. God has given pastors, teachers, evangelists to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. When we leave this week, we need to live intentionally because we have news that will literally save the world. We literally have the cure to spiritual cancer in our back pocket, and we're not telling anybody around us, although everyone is sick and dying. We owe it to the city of Athens. We, we owe it. In fact, David Platt said, we this side of heaven owe the gospel to everyone this side of hell. We are on this side of heaven. We're waiting for heaven to come to earth. And we owe that good news to everyone in this city who is this side of hell because God has undeservedly saved us and therefore we need to risk our lives to get out there and risk embarrassment to get that news out to people who do not yet know it. Let me pray briefly and then I'm gonna open up the, the, the communion table. God, we thank you that as maybe confusing and as heavy as this passage is and as strange as it may sound, it is great meat for the mature. It is great healthy food for the believer that we have such a high priest who has entered into the heavens and has offered his own blood on the altar to atone for our sins. And I pray now, God, that we would experience your love for us personally applied through this act of communion. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Real quick, the, the, the purpose of this meal right here is because Jesus is not physically present with us anymore. He is spiritually present. Physically, he's not here. And Jesus wants to actually be able to tangibly let you touch and taste his love for you in a physical way, and he has made this symbol available to all who have turned from sin 
and trusted in Him for their salvation. Now listen, if you're not a believer today, if you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus, or if you're living in unrepentant sin, first thing you need is to get right with Jesus. You need Jesus right now, not communion. God has, God has given very careful instructions that this is, a, this is a family meal. This is for the people in the family. So if you, are, if, if you are trusting Jesus as your only hope of salvation today and you have repented of sin and you're not living in unrepentant sin right now as you examine your heart, this table is for you. And as Ian plays, uh, we're going to ask people to just come up when you want, uh, tear off some of the bread, dip it in the juice, and you can kind of try to keep it from getting on the carpet by cupping your hand under there, and you can return to your seat and take it when you want to. Uh, if you have a gluten intolerance, there is some gluten-free uh, crackers up here as well on the plates. And so I'm going to pray one last time, and then uh, please come and partake, and let this be a time of confession, prayer, repentance, and renewal of, of just trust in the gospel. So let's pray together. God, I just pray right now that we would come up to this table broken, desiring to change whatever's wrong with us right now by your grace to turn from sin. And I pray as we come, we would be broken and as we return, we would be rejoicing because sin does not have the last word. Jesus has the last word. Jesus is alive and reigning over our life. And I thank you that you have rescued so many of us from our sin. And I pray right now we would be broken and full of hope as we repent and believe in the good news of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready.